Today is April the 3rd, 2018, and we have a distinct honor to not only have an interview with a man that has accomplished a lot, but he is a member of the board of directors of the Austin History Center. And I appreciate you coming and showing some time with us. Well, thank you very much. And so Pleased today, to excuse me, mm -hmm. today you're not a board member. Today you are being honored, okay? Thank you. All right. Mr. Arnold Garcia has an extensive career in particularly in the newspaper business, and I'm hoping we'll get to all of it today because he's got really a lot of things to tell us. So if you'll tell me your whole full name. Yes, I'm Arnold Garcia. Well, actually, I'm Arnulfo Garcia, Jr. Okay. And um, they, they call me Arnold because my father, I'm a junior, and when the parish priest baptized my father, he said, oh, I can't pronounce Arnulfo. From now on, you're Arnold. So I got <laughs> that, too. Uh, so I'm both ways. My, my driver's license, my army papers, everything is Arnulfo, but I'm known professionally as Arnold. Well, throughout your career, you have found a whole lot of people that didn't quite understand how to what you were saying if you spoke Spanish, or exactly how to do it. And some think they Including do, and some don't. In Mexico. Yeah, the best <laughs> thing is is you ask somebody. You don't act like you already know it. Well, give me uh, a little bit about your parents and where you were born. I was born in San Angelo, Texas on February the 25th, 1948. My father uh, was Arnulfo Alvarez Garcia. My mother's name was Berta Castorena Garcia. They were both, uh, my father was born in San Angelo. My my mother was born in Del Rio, Texas. Um, the experience there was very common uh, for uh, people of their generation. Their parents had fled the violence of the Mexican Revolution. My grandfather, Teodoro Castorena, paternal grandfather, uh, maternal grandfather, crossed in uh, 1914. Uh, my paternal grandfather, uh, Crescencio Garcia, came across in 1914 as well. My grandmother, my maternal grandmother, Adela Castorena, uh, Salazar, her maiden name was Salazar, uh, told me stories about having to flee or when they fled Mexico because their her family owned a hacienda outside of uh, Piedra Negras, which is across the border from Eagle Pass. The Vistas were coming to kill them. Mm. So they had to load up everything in a cart and literally flee in the middle of the night. She ended up in Del Rio where she met my, my grandfather who made a living working for railroads. He was quite a cowboy, tremendous horseman. Uh, and my paternal grandfather, uh, Crescencio, uh, did migrant uh, labor. And my grandmother, um, Concepcion uh, Alvarez, was born in San Antonio. Uh, 
Oh, okay. Really, kind of what you have said is they were born and raised in an area where Texas was just beginning to feel itself from so many other wars that it had. Well, that, that's, yeah, that, that's correct. I, I, um, uh, the, the first generation the, uh, immigrated uh, during, the, during the revolutionary era when Texas needed the labor right at the turn of the century. Uh, so it was sort of a, a happy, not so well, I don't know, happy may, might not be the appropriate <laughs> word for it, but it was a, 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 a circumstance where uh, both countries were in need of something. Uh, the people who were fleeing the violence in Mexico uh, obviously needed refuge and safety, some sort, some form of security, and the people in Texas needed to work. So. Um, Theirs was a legal crossing, um, and um, it's. I think it's important to put this in a in a broader historical context. During that era, uh, between 1910 and 1914, Mexico lost a quarter of its population, either through bloodshed or 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 out migration. The Mexican population of Texas doubled. 1910 to 1920. Uh, I did some poking around in the census uh, records of the of the time, and I was kind of first time I looked at that, I was I was startled, but not <laughs> not surprised. I was, it just it's just startling to see wow. it in, yeah. in in black and white. So there's a lot of people my age who are the grandchildren, literally, of of the Mexican Revolution. Yeah, and that was the period of time that I was talking about. Right. You have quite a bit of indebtedness both to Texas and Mexico to have been able to come to what you have with the parents you had. That's correct. Uh, tell me about your wife and your children. My, uh, my wife uh, is Vida Marcet Ocaña. Uh, she was born in Mexico City in 1949. And her family has got an interesting story too. They were they were Spaniards, mm -hmm. and um, during the Spanish Civil War, they fled almost literally in the middle of the night because uh, they were anarchists. <laughs> and and uh, Francisco Franco, the generalissimo, um, was looking for them. And um, Vida's father. Uh, got his family out. They went first to France and then the Canary, uh, the Dominican Republic. And um, one, of the, one of their uncles, one of Vida's uncles, uh, Antonio Marcet's brother, wasn't quite so lucky. He was a political prisoner for more than 30 years. And this is a, this is a, a little known story. I, I, I never knew it until the family members told me that at the time Lázaro Cárdenas was president of Mexico, this was in the 30s. Lázaro Cárdenas was, was considered a god in Mexico. Um, the oil companies in the U.S. don't like him much because he appropriated the, uh, <laughs> the uh, oil companies and their holdings and, and, yep. and that founded Pemex, the, the national oil company. 
Anyway, he, he said that he was going to take in the refugees from the Spanish Civil War and got a lot of pushback from, from the Mexican Congress that said, we, we, we're having trouble, you know, finding things for our own people to do, much less bring in these Spaniards and, and got in and stuck to his guns and said, no, they're teachers, engineers, they're the kind of people we need, so we're bringing them in. So they, they brought them in. And it was uh, remarkable that they were able to survive because uh, Mexico and Spain did not have formal diplomatic relations until 1969. There was the uh, resentment from, uh, they, they, it was a long grudge to carry 1810, was the, 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 the War of Independence from Spain in Mexico lasted 1810 to 1820, 10 years. Kind of a coincidence. And it was an interesting phenomenon that they migrated south instead of as many of the Mexican or uh, people that were in the south migrated to the north. Right. But the Spanish, Spanish people had to come around and come in right. from the cruise. other side. Yeah. That's right. That's an interesting background. What about your children? How many do you have? Two. Two? Uh, uh, the oldest is um, uh, Jennifer, my daughter Jennifer, uh, Garcia Jaton. Uh, she's a medical doctor. Um, got her undergraduate degree at, at uh, Harvard and um, studied medicine at the Baylor College of Medicine. Mm -hmm. And uh, my son, Teodoro, uh, was named after my grandfather, uh, is uh, currently a captain in the U.S. Army. Where is he assigned now? Fort Carson, Colorado. Fort Carson, Colorado. Actually, right now he's he's assigned to what they call a student brigade. He is he was selected uh, by the army to get a master's degree. They take the top ten percent mm -hmm. of the cohort of captains, and they said, "Go get a master's degree on us." Mm -hmm. And so anywhere that'll accept you, we'll pay for it. Sure, I think that's excellent. How about grandchildren? Six. Six grandchildren. <laughs> Well, uh, could we divide some from the son and some from the daughter? Well, there, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's an even split, three each. Okay. <laughs> and I've got, uh, Teo's got another one on the way, so Christmas just got more expensive. One. I can well imagine, yeah. And them too. Yeah. Well, let's uh, center kind of on you specifically right now and dig into from when you were born until you really got into college and where you went, and you then became interested in news business. Yeah, um, my father, well, my parents were big uh, advocates of um, education. They 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 appreciated uh, the value of of a good education. So they sacrificed and and uh, enrolled my sister and I in Catholic schools there in, in San Angelo, um, where I think I got a, a, a very, very sound education. And um, then Catholic school was over with after uh, the seventh grade. And I, I enrolled in Thomas Alva Edison Junior High School. It was junior high, not, not middle school back then. <laughs> and from there to Central High School. As the name implied, uh, 
central was uh, where all the kids, uh, high school age kids in San Angelo went to school. The school board at the time was very progressive uh, by today's standards because uh, the, they realized that it was just too expensive to run a segregated school system. School system, yes. Past the elementary school level. Mm -hmm. So once you got out of the, the elementary schools and the public school system there, you were funneled into one of two junior highs, and then everybody went to Central. Mm -hmm. So everybody had access, theoretically, to the same uh, level of education, and that is thanks to um, a fellow named Frank Poole, who was sort of the mastermind behind all that. He was chairman of the school board at the time. Um, from uh, there, uh, you know, we didn't have any money, and I was the first uh, generation really uh, college students so fortunately uh, Angelo State College which had been a two year school converted to a four year institution in 1967 Oh, okay. thanks to the work of um, Ben Barnes and Governor Connolly and the owner of the, the, the newspaper there Houston Hart um, and by the way, every time I see Barnes these days, I thank him for Angelo State. Thank you for the school. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because I, I might not have been able to get an education uh, otherwise. Um, I studied um, history and government. I've always been interested in, in, in history and uh, government. And I was a junior at Angelo State when uh, a friend of mine who worked at the newspaper said, hey, they've got an opening for a reporter, so why don't you apply? And I said, I, I was 20 years old, face full of pimples. <laughs> and um, he said, why don't you apply? And I said, I don't know anything about it. Oh, what do I do? He said, don't worry, they'll teach you. <laughs> so uh, I applied at the San Angelo Standard Times and, and uh, had my first meeting with uh, Bill Martin, who was the managing editor there. And um, he said, you're hired. I was hired for the princely sum of $80 a week. Wow. So I thought that was all the money in the world, yeah. Uh, college junior. It uh, still is. That's good money. <laughs> yeah, and I swear I had more, co uh, more money in my pocket then than I do now. <laughs> but anyway, uh, oh, I... Uh, I did learn uh, the basics of journalism. I wrote a lot of obituaries. I covered police. Um, learned a lot. For a rookie reporter, I think the best and most challenging assignment there can be is covering law enforcement. Because you well know, uh, cops and reporters don't necessarily get along uh, Unless they need each other. Yeah, unless they need each other. <laughs> and they, the, 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 the people at the, at the police department had a, had a special little nickname for me. They called me Wet. <laughs> uh, and um, an interesting thing happened. Uh, one night I was in there reading the offense reports. And that was part of the routine. You'd go in to the police station, 
at the beginning of the shift and at the end of the shift and go through the offense reports to see if there was something in there worth, worth writing about. Um, and so I was standing there reading the offense reports, or, or as they call them, the offense reports. And all of a sudden, this guy walks in, and he's holding this woman. She's bleeding down her leg like this. And uh, I, uh, he slams her. He got her by the arm, and he slams her. She's bleeding like this. And he slams her up against the counter. And I, I kind of look around, and, and the, the dispatcher, the lieutenant, the shift lieutenant, a fellow named Tom Flowers, was, was uh, sitting in the in the. He looked at me, he looked at him, sure. and he just shot out of his chair. He came out, <clears throat> and, he's, and it was a police officer. It was a patrol, patrolman named C.B. Nation. And he uh, threw that woman up against the counter and says, here's my whoring wife, and here's the gun I shot her lover with. Oh. oh. <laughs> and, <I was> like, <laughs> and he said, hey, 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 hey let's go back in here. So they, 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 they take him into a back room, and I can hear he's throwing things, and he, I can't stand it anymore, and that's it. And I can't take it. I can't, you know, I shot him. I shot him. And um, so I go hot-footing it back to the paper. <laughs> and so uh, uh, the, I tell the night editor, I said, I just saw this. I just saw a, a, a police officer. He brought his... And he said, uh, here's my whore and wife, and you know, just kind of play the whole scene for him. Yeah. And the gun, I shot it. And so he calls Martin, Bill Martin, the managing editor at home, and says, hey, Garcia, uh, tells him the story. And so he hangs, he hangs up the phone, he looks at me and says, Martin says, write it short, no names. <laughs> uh, what? No names. So I'm, I, I wrote, the vaguest three paragraphs in the history of American journalism. Austin police are investigating what may or may not have been a shooting that may or may not have been. <laughs> it just is, you know, it was worthless. It was a waste of space. So, um, so the next day, next afternoon, uh, I walk in there and um, the, the, of course, the, the afternoon, there were two editions morning and afternoon. Uh, so the day, day side police reporter had it all. I mean, picture of CB and, you know, all the details yeah. and everything. And I walk over to Martin's desk, and Martin was a, a little bitty guy, bald, had a, his teeth like this. And, um, and when he got mad, the color would start rising here until the top of his head almost got purple. Mm. So you didn't want to make him mad. <laughs> you never wanted to make bother him. him. <laughs> you didn't want to irritate Mr. Martin in any, any kind of way. And so I, I walked over and I said, Bill, I knew all this last night. Why don't you let me write this? And he looked at me with this little guy. <laughs> and he started to get red like this. Nobody told me you had seen it. Oh, my. Oh, my. <laughs> I didn't want to be that other guy. Yeah, I can imagine. Well, the story had a happy ending. So right. I, go, I go to the police station, and one of the dispatchers um, going through the police report, see if there's anything to <laughs> follow up with. 
And the guy says, hey, wet. So I go in there. And I said, yeah. He said, he said, you made a lot of friends in here last night. And I said, oh? He said, yeah, you could have hung old poor CB out to dry, but you didn't do it. So from what now on, anything you want. <laughs> well, so after that, I owned the police station. <laughs> I, I guess they call that you done good. <laughs> yeah, you done good. <laughs> well, I know that that was a busy time back in your 1968 time, and you then decided whether you did or didn't like to do that. But suddenly, 1969 comes up. Yeah, almost a year that later. That kind of changed your whole vision of what's going on, didn't it? Wasn't that the it, Army it, time? Yeah, it did. It did. Um, I, I had I had worked a, a year at the at the newspaper, and I was feeling like uh, I knew a little bit about what what I was doing uh, at the Bill Martin uh, uh, School of Journalism. Uh, I loved it so much that I quit going to class, and mm -hmm. so I lost my student deferment, <laughs> and. Uh, uh, I was declared 1A, and, and pretty soon my friends and neighbors uh, wrote me a letter on the president on behalf of my friends and neighbors, uh, ordering me to report for induction at Fort Bliss, October the 20th, 19, yeah, October the 20th, 1969. So I, w I went off to the Army, and um, the times were very, uh, Difficult, as you, as you well know, the, it was there was a great deal of turmoil in in the in the country, a great deal of division over over the war in Vietnam and um, the way it was being prosecuted, and um, families were were literally being torn apart. Uh, my father, uh, who had served in World War II. Um, had a chat with me because um, I was very, I didn't like the idea of going off to the Army at all. And so um, he said, well, I, I, I know, I, I have a feeling I know what you're thinking. He says, but I want to tell you one thing. He says, there's never been a Chicano deserter. You don't be the first one or you don't come home. Oh, wow. I was the only son. There you go. So um, uh, given those options, I, <laughs> I, I showed up. And my mother, the day I, the day I reported for induction, uh, my mother wanted to go. And my dad said, no, this is something that um, we have to do. So uh, we got in the car. He didn't, he didn't say a word, not a word. So got to where I needed to go. and. Um, I was getting out of the car and my dad said, son, war's tough. The army's tough. He said, so keep your head and butt down and never draw it on the inside straight. <laughs> <laughs> See, he had been around a little bit. Well, you did two years there then and um, seemed to have been discharged with an honorable discharge. Oh, of course, yeah. Very good. Yeah. You must have listened to dad. That was very good. But you also must have learned something that you liked, because when you came back out of there, you kind of took a liking to the National Guard. Well, here's what happened. I was out of the, I was out of the Army for, for a long time. I was a, um, 
I like. I was assigned to an infantry unit. That was that was not uh, much fun, but it was in Germany, not Vietnam. My orders for Vietnam got canceled at the very last minute. I mean, just at, I was at Fort Lewis. I was ready to go to Jungle Issue, and they the the guy said, "You might not have to go." Mm. Two hundred nineteen guys, all with combat MOSs, got turned around. We all went to Germany. Uh, so. Uh, even though it was uh, an infantry company, it was in the middle of winter. It was it was infantry is just a miserable existence. Um, it, nobody was shooting at me, <laughs> so uh, so I, I came back. I was uh, I was discharged a buck sergeant. I thought I'd done you know my time. I went back to work at the newspaper, um, and. Uh, in 1980, they took the hostages in uh, the embassy in, in uh, Tehran. Mm -hmm. And um, after work, I got patriotically drunk. And I was um, saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to resign. I'm going to re-enlist. I'll bet you they give me my rank back. They can't do this to us. And, and, um, like I said, patriotically. I was going to say, that's a new, <laughs> new term. I like that. I like that. That's good. Uh, well, Dan Jenkins says there are seven stages of, of, of drunkenness, you know, uh, and I can't do them all, but, but um, number seven or eight is patriotic. Um, well, that's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I said, I, I, so I'm, I'm going to do all this. And I was, I was going to do it. I was going to resign. I was going to see if I could get my rank back, and I was going to go back in the Army, and I was hoping they'd... So this friend of mine's sitting there, and he says, no, no, you don't want to do that. You don't, you, you, believe me, you don't want to do that. He said, why don't you go enlist in the National Guard, and, and, uh, and maybe they'll give you a commission. And so um, I thought, well, okay. So I kind of calmed down enough to to sort of listen to reason, and, and I followed through. I went, I went to see the the, um, the, the Texas uh, National Guard recruiter, and they were hurting for people, you know, because after the, after the Vietnam War was over, you know, all the people who had joined up in the reserves in the National Guard, they were all gone. Their, their enlistments were up, so they, they needed people, and they needed officers. So they said, sure, yeah. Yeah, here, here's an application for a direct commission. So I filled out the paperwork, and they said, um, and they gave me a physical and all that. And they said, well, you just have to wait till you get your uh, paperwork back from Washington and see what, what, what kind of rank you'll get. So I'm a letter. <laughs> they made me an instant captain. Wow. Uh, and so uh, I went, I joined the National Guard as a, as a PAO, public affairs officer. Mm -hmm. First to go, last to know. Well, uh, you also, between the time you did that and when you were in the service regularly, uh, you did a lot of uh, training yourself in the newspaper business at various roles and some of it at the American Statesman in Austin, Texas, about 1974 or so. 
Yeah, in 19, uh, when I got back from the Army, I was, I was uh, married then to Jennifer's mother. And um, um, I needed to make a living. I had a family to support, and, and, and um, the Standard Times um, had raised that princely $80 a month, uh, a week, let's see, uh, to $120, I think, which was just that and the GI Bill kept us, you know, in groceries and, and uh, roof over our heads, but, but just, uh, um, we had a little extra. And I was covering the courthouse in San Angelo at the time, uh, Tom Green County Courthouse, and that's where I learned how county government works or doesn't. And um, it just so happened that they needed a courthouse reporter here in, in Austin, and so a friend of mine who worked at, at the American States and says, I know a guy in San Angelo. And um, so I can, they offered me a job. I think they, they, they paid me $130 a week, so that, was, that seemed like all the money in the world back then. And uh, I got to know the, that place that we can see from, from, from here. Yes, the Capitol. Yes, I knew, I, knew, uh, <laughs> I, I, knew, I knew Judge Blackwell, I knew Judge Thurman. Uh, the county commissioners at the time were Richard Moya and David Samuelson, Johnny Vaduras, who later got beat by Ann Richards. That's the way I got to meet her. Um, and um, and El Galt. And so, I guess when you get to be old enough, you know the you know the pe you knew the people whose names were on buildings. Well, and what you did was it. That courthouse reporting is where you learn all those things. Right, right. That, right. I think you were on the right track with a lot of that. <clears throat> but you also registered pretty high when you were there and made some pretty good moves upwardly. Yeah, I, I was, I've, I've always been very uh, fortunate, you know, the, the expression, better lucky than good. Um, <laughs> we worked... I, uh, a, a friend of mine, uh, a good friend of mine, was was my reporting partner, John Sutton, and I. Um, between the two of us, we got to know uh, all the people who, all the people in the courthouse. I mean, at all levels, and um, we made friends with, uh, with everybody: the bail bondsmen, uh, the janitors. I, I always tell kids when I, or students when I teach classes is, and you know this, That's you need to talk to the invisible people. They know what's going on. The people who at the titles will tell you only so much. I totally agree. It, but if you talk to the invisible people, the janitors, the secretaries, the uh, the, the, the people who are always in the background, but who are become invisible, you really get a, a, an idea of what's happening. And so one day we were, we, we picked up an afternoon paper. The Statesman had two editions in those days, uh, a morning, the, the morning uh, American and the afternoon Statesman. Uh, so we were going through the newspaper to see it. Things were slow and we were going through the paper to see what movie we were going to go to that afternoon. <laughs> and Richard uh, 
came came by. Richard was a janitor and he was pushing a broom. He was a big guy, bald head, bad teeth, real bad teeth. Um, and he said, uh, can I have that paper when you're done with it? And I said, sure, Richard. He says, yeah, you know, when you got six kids, um, it's, it's hard to feed them all, and they always have pizza coupons in the paper, so that's why I yeah, help yourself. And he's pushing the broom, and he's starting to go away. He says, well, I guess you guys are going to be kind of busy this afternoon. <laughs> oh, why is that, Richard? <laughs> he said, well, the grand jury's upstairs, and they're, they're getting ready to, to, to return a bunch of uh, sealed indictments, a big drug raid. Oh, here's another paper for you. <laughs> <laughs> so he said, oh, really? <laughs> he says, yeah, yeah. I says, well, see you later. Thanks. He, so we go start working the phones, and, and, and um, the DA at the time was, was a fellow named Robert O. Smith, um, and he was just furious, just furious. He put, he wanted to know how we knew. And of course, we didn't, weren't about to tell him. <laughs> and um, what had happened was Richard was in there sweeping up in the grand jury room and you know, just hurt things. And um, he put his prosecutors, grand jurors, anybody who wandered in the, who happened to walk by, <laughs> he, put, he put them on the box, you know, the light oh, detector yeah. test. Yeah. He wanted to know, and he never bothered Richard. And, and uh, Robert O. Smith died not knowing who, where the leak was. <laughs> well, you know, they just almost look past people like that yeah, instead of that, Adam. Right, know, right, it's right. A sad thing. Well, part of what you did when you were over there and getting some of that back information like you were doing, you kind of became the uh, editor of the editorial page. Well, uh, Cox newspapers bought the American Statesman from um, from the um, uh, from God, going to punish me for not It'll remembering come. that. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, uh, but yes, but um, it was there was another name, uh, another surname. I'll think of it. It'll come. Yeah. Um, Fentress, the Fentress family in Waco. They owned, mm -hmm. they owned uh, the American States when they owned Waco and they owned some other newspapers around the state. Um, Cox Bottom in 1977. And with them came uh, a new publisher, uh, General Fain, Jim Fain. Uh, we called him the general because he was a general. He was a brigadier general in the Air Force <laughs> Reserve and told great stories about serving in World War II and, and having drinks with John Wayne when he visited the Pacific Theater. And Ray Mariotti, Ray J. Mariotti, who was uh, a lot like Bill Martin in, in, in the way that he was just demanding and, um, and he wanted to know what was going on very hard charging editor, but a walking sexual harassment suit. Um, <laughs> the, uh, uh, but Mariotti uh, 
really elevated the newspaper, I think, and his fingerprints are still on that newspaper today. He, had, he, he brought in Ellie Rucker, he brought in the columnist Kelso, he made Kelly a, a, a Mike Kelly a columnist. Um, he made Ben Sargent, who was being wasted as a reporter, the cartoonist. And so he just kind of made it, put it on the road to being a big city newspaper. And so um, I was covering the school district then, and I was being punished for uh, something, I don't, I don't know, because they took me off the courthouse beat. They gave me the school beat, which was what we called CLFs. They wanted mm -hmm. uh, cute little features mm -hmm. about kids. And, mm -hmm. um, and I started covering it like a beat. I started paying attention to what they were doing with the money and who was on the school board. and Because um, uh, that's what I was used to. That's what I knew. That's, that was what, and, I, you know, and, and I'd go do the obligatory cute little features on the kids. And, I even spent a day in the classroom writing about, and to write about what it was like to be a substitute teacher and also to learn kind of what was going on. And, and, and took, I took an achievement test. I, I did all kinds of things to kind of make that interesting to me because mm -hmm. if, if you settle for um, what's expected and don't put any effort into it, then you're going to be bored to death. You may go home at 4.30 in the afternoon, but I agree. I agree. So I was doing that, and then the Fifth Circuit in New Orleans gave me the biggest gift anybody ever gave anybody. They handed down this desegregation order that was just thorough. What and year was that? Remember? That was 1977, mm. 76, mm -hmm. 77, mm -hmm. somewhere in there. I was on the front page every day oh yeah um and and so that that education beat which has kind of been a backwater basically on one the next step was out the door um it was school beat writing about weather and so long um so uh i did that and mariotti said uh mariotti sent the managing editor to say Ray wants to make you an assistant city editor. Yep. And I said, well, no thanks. I'm having too much fun being a reporter. <laughs> so he goes back and he, he, the next day, he invites me back to have coffee, which is never, ever, ever a good sign. <laughs> he said, so he said, let's go get a cup of coffee. Oh, no. He says, Maybe I didn't make myself very clear <laughs> yesterday. Ray wants you to be an editor. So then I became an assistant city editor. Um, and that was fun, but life as an assistant city editor is, is um, you know, you have a lot of responsibility and very little authority. And, and uh, so to make things happen, you have to, Kind of every management skill you can bring to bear. I recall those things. I worked for the American Statesman in uh, the 50s when I was in high school for, I think, Mr. Uh, uh, Hood was the editor at the time that I was there. 
And I oh, was I've a, heard stories about Yeah, that. I've had, I was a scanagraver, which was kind of like the guy yeah. that sweeps, you know. But anytime they took pictures, I was able to right. put them in there. And totally. I've heard people like you that were the editors not wanting to be editors because they didn't think they had the freedom to do the things that they had been doing. Yeah. And so I understand exactly what you're saying. And it's, um, it was great that you stayed there and made it what it is instead of what it was. Yeah, well, I, I, I think um, Mariotti had uh, some other things in, in mind for me. He, he uh, I remember one night, he was, he was kind of, he, he, he was an interesting fellow. He would come in and check, see what was going on, and, 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 and one night he came in and he said, kid, I'm going to take you to the quorum with me. The quorum was a, uh, on Red River, it was a bar and where all the legislators hung out. Frank Irwin, who was chairman of the UT Board of Regents, hung out in there. And um, you, walk, you walked in and you opened the door, it was in, in the basement, and, uh, and the cigarette smoke would just go. <laughs> oh, yes. Uh, so we go in there and he says, but, but first he looked me over and made sure that my shoes were shined and, you know, just, he said, now you're going to be meeting a lot of important people in here, so behave yourself. Okay. So I said, oh, sure, right. And so we walk in there, and uh, there were a bunch of legislators that I that I knew, and so they all said hello. And I said hello, hello. I said Hugo Orlanga and Gonzalo Barrientos and some of those people. <laughs> so I'm shaking hands with all of them, and they said, "Do you all know Ray?" So I think that that kind of that that kind of put him. Uh, and he gave me a lot of free. I mean, sure. he'd, he'd give me a reporting assignment every once in a while just to keep me, get me off the desk and and, and keep me, keep my hand in reporting. Cause well, your background reflects a lot of that because you had like 39 years in the newspaper business, and 22 of those, you were the editor of the editor page, which oh, yeah. is one of the most significant parts of the paper, if you're a elected official uh, yeah um, <laughs> that happened um, you know ag again better lucky than good so I was writing a I was having a ball I was having an absolute ball because I had been an assistant city editor then they made me the metro editor mm -hmm. uh, which is um, you're responsible for the the design and the content you decide where stories go in, in the B section, in the metro section. It's all local news. And being the, being the B section editor is just another way of saying victim. Because you always, page one will take, steal your art, your photos. They'll steal your stories and then, you know, you got to scramble for something else and rearrange the pages. Or if they decide, well, I don't, probably don't want this after all. And you always had to say on, on the holidays, you always had to save, save a hole somewhere for the pain in the ass Christmas Eve <laughs> fire that always happened, you know. Oh, yeah. Uh, um, fire? Oh, yeah. There's people, people, yeah, Christmas Eve fire. I mean, 
somebody out there's Christmas tree is going to catch on fire or their space heater is going to, you know, it's just... Both of those are high. Yeah, and it always that. happens like 20 minutes before deadline. It's going to be just big enough that you can't, uh, not big enough for page one, but uh, just big enough that you can't ignore it. Right. So... Um, Anyway, and, and then the story always reads the same. Oh, you know, a tragic Christmas Eve fire deprived of, you know, Austin family, and they'd always get lots of money and presents afterwards. Um, I, don't, I don't mean to sound flip about it, but it happened, you know. It just well, like I think happened. you're just yeah. reporting it honestly, yeah. and I think that's good. <laughs> well, you must have been pretty good at that because I have in the back of my knowledge about you being the editor for the Pulitzer Prize jury that's pretty significant oh yeah that happened uh, uh, oh well just to finish the the, the complete the mm -hmm. cycle so after after I did that sentence um, the the they said well we need a political reporter somebody to write about local politics so. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and so I, I raised my hand and, and I, got, I got that job and I was having a ball doing that. And the editorial page editor at the time and the editor had, um, had a falling out. And, um, you know, big fish eat little fish. So there was no way he was gonna win. Right. You know? And so Maggie Bailov, who was the, the editor at the time, asked me if I wanted to try out, audition for the part. And I said, sure. So I did, and, and, and I got the job. That was in 91. And, um, and again, it was, it was something I wasn't, I thought I sort of knew how to do it, but not exactly what. And I learned that people are really picky about their letters to the editor I was the designated piñata, and there's nothing like writing opinion and commentary in a town with uh, five institutions of higher learning, and everybody's a genius and knows more about everything than you do. <laughs> so, um, is that Austin, Texas? Yeah, yeah okay. I wonder. <laughs> So, uh, but I, it was fun. It was it was it was fun, and I got to meet I, I got to meet a, 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 a an interesting array of, of people and experts. I mean, I met Arianna Huffington, and I met um, Ben Bradley, and I'm, I'm all kinds of all kinds of people, and of course, candidates, all the candidates for governor and senator, and and uh, all levels of. of a public office and got to sit there and interview with them. The, uh, one of the more um, interesting um, encounters I had was with Phil Graham, uh, who was um, senator, Republican senator from, from Texas for a long time and head of the, became uh, chief of the banking committee, he was a Democrat turned Republican. And if you saw him on TV, he was just like, very, very much a gas bag. Um, but in private, he was very thoughtful, he was funny, I enjoyed the conversation with him. Uh, the same way with Jesse Jackson. When, when we met Jesse Jackson, 
uh, I was expecting the TV personality, and, um, and I found him to be very thoughtful, very, very engaging, very erudite. Uh, so, so it was, it was, a, it was, it was very much a broadening experience for me. Well, and you benefited from that because you got to see what they look like in the paper, but you also got to see what they looked like down deep. Right. Which brings me to some of the things, in addition to you <clears throat> doing a Pulitzer Prize thing for the cartoons, which I didn't know we had Pulitzer Prize for well, cartoons. Yeah, you did yeah, that very well. But what is interesting in your background, and you've talked about it, is that the Latino portion of where you came from, and I'm sure that there were times people looked at you a little differently. <laughs> yeah, that's one way of putting it. Right. But you, you really seem to have begun to be innervated by helping other Latinos become part of this project. And I think that's good. Can you tell me something about that? Well, journalism is, is said to be the first draft of history. Um, and in, in many ways it is because uh, I always looked at my work or the work of others and, and I would tell this to reporters and they would kind of look at me like I said a hundred years from now somebody's going to be going through this microfilm to kind of get an idea of what was going on in Austin at the time <laughs> and so you know you need to get it right you know you need to get uh, some context and also you know if, if, if it's possible to throw in little details to help the researchers you know what was the weather like well I mean if it's relevant um, just you know little right. gems that 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 you can uh, that somebody might be able to use and you never know what that's going to be so I always looked at at my my work as being I mean I took that for gospel, that it was the first draft of history, and we make mistakes, and the first reports are inevitably wrong, and uh, I understand that. Um, it's very fulfilling, however, to be able to sort of be on the inside and kind of give the, the context and, and fill that out in a way that relates to what ordinary people and how they're going to be affected by whatever it is that's going on. Yes. yes. And, and, and communicate it in a way they understand. I think, I think a lot of journalists make the mistake of writing to the people that they, the officials and the people like that, they're, they're writing like to impress them and not explain to readers what's, what's What's happening? Well, I think it, it sounds to me like not only did you make headway for yourself and many other people in looking at them not as whose grandkids they were or whose children they were, as how they were doing and whether they would fit in it. And you developed enough that others could look at you and want to emulate that. And then you started doing something that is called Erora Si. Erora Si, yeah. mm -hmm. Well, uh, the, the point I, I was inarticulately trying to make earlier was that history is incomplete unless 
it's a it's a complete telling. A story is incomplete unless you, you, you tell the whole story and excluding the Latino contribution to Austin and to the to, to history in general is not telling the whole story. So you're not giving the complete picture and that's what supposedly we're about. We started uh, so that's why I thought it was important to to bring in people uh, with um, that look like me into into this business. I was the first Mexican-American reporter uh, to work in, in Austin. And after, uh, and, and so I, I knew, I was 26 years old, so I knew that uh, if I fell on my butt, it would be a long time before anybody else right. got a shot. So I, I had to succeed one way or the other, even though I wasn't exactly sure what I was doing, I sort of had to figure it out as I went along. And, and the, the same way in everything I ever did, because I knew, you know, I had to keep that door open and the first one through the door gets shot, I knew that. Um, I knew that as well, so uh, I always tried to work in a way that wouldn't that people wouldn't say oh yeah well we tried one of them and they didn't work out i mean because i heard I've, I've heard people say that well i think that's right but i think that looking at you you have mounted so many big mountains climbed them but you also wrote spanish language weeklies well, not every week, but yeah, boy. And that, <laughs> okay, that, bi-weekly, that, 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 some kind of weekly. Well, that, that, that sort of that's that that sort of uh, uh, yeah. that that was sort of very taxing because I, you know you have to think in another language, and uh, it's it's one thing to be able to converse. And I tell my I tell my relatives in Mexico, Vida's family, that I, when when they they introduce me, um, they they. They, they said, he's, he's a gringo. <laughs> what? <laughs> uh, I said, well, okay, I, I, I speak three languages. I speak English, a little Spanish, and Tex-Mex. <laughs> and so writing Spanish, uh, I had some college training in that. But, man, it is, it is hard to sort of not to translate literally what you want to say, but to sort of make it flow in another language. And so they have idioms like we have idioms and ways of expressing. Correct. And yeah. so you can't translate word for word, literally for word for word what you're doing. So, so I'd struggle. I mean, it would take me a long time to, to, to get it where I wanted it. And, uh, and so one day, uh, Ahora Si, which is a Spanish language publication that we did. It was uh, called what? Ahora Si. Oh, Ahora Si. Yeah. It means okay now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they, somebody turned copy in, and I, I noticed it was it was uh, it was in English, and the edit, and, and the editor, the the woman who edited the the paper, said, uh, "Okay, we'll send this to the translator." And I said, "You have translators." <laughs> Why come you made me do <laughs> And she said, well, you know, you can't. <laughs> well, I can only imagine that because I can just speak one language and it's hard enough, much less to have two or three and have people do it. 
But among some of the things that you also got was you got honors for writing in both of those languages uh, with the Associated Press. I have here the Texas State Teachers Association. You are a past president of the Headliners Club. Yeah. I'm very familiar with Headliners Club. Tell me about that. Oh, that was just, uh, you know, kind of standard. There's nothing really to being president of the Headliners Club. Uh -huh. It was, it was um, <laughs> you just do what, what the Sue McBee, the late Sue McBee. <laughs> and, and, uh, her hus Sue's husband, Frank, as you know, was, mm -hmm. was president of Drake, Tracor, and he was a longtime member of the Headliners Board of Governors, which is, is and Frank, um, was was uh, was something of a mentor to me, and um, I guess he decided I needed to be president, and um, so you know uh, I was, and I, and uh, in my acceptance speech, there's a, so you can see that you can see that you know the demographic of the headliners <laughs> club is, is old white people, and so. Uh, so in, in my speech, I said, and, and I, I, I want to tell you all that I'm very proud to be the first reporter <laughs> to be president of the Atlanta oh, and that Club. isn't what they expected at all. <laughs> you, <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. That's, yes, I'm very familiar with them, and I think it's wonderful that you were able to, to do that, and you... You did it for quite a while. Yeah, uh, I'd say a year. It's a, it's well, a that's term. a long time the, at the Headliners yeah. Club. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was on the board. Always got good tables and a preferred parking. So, But no. from those things and looking at your background and looking at the military aspects and seeing what your son and your daughter did and how you dug into the places where you were to make sure you could get it or do it the best you could, Okay. Within that, I have that you were a board member on the Crime Prevention Institute, which is a wonderful board. Yeah, um, Roy Butler uh, was a great guy. Great guy. Mm -hmm. I, I got I got along great with, uh, with with Roy Butler, although I never covered him. Um, I just sort of got to know him, like a lot of other people. Mr. Butler uh, recruited me to be on that board, and I thought it was uh, I thought it was important work, and and uh, uh, because I have uh, I come from a a, a family uh, with a lot of law enforcement in it. I've, I've got uh, cousins and aunts and uncles. My godfather was a lieutenant on the San Angelo Police Force. Um, my cousin was. Was retired as a sergeant. I've got MPs. I got Border Patrol. I got I got all kinds of law enforcement. And, so you got cops, and you've got uh, military, and you've got yeah, editorial. Deputy sheriffs. Well, you've and, got a lot. Yeah, deputy <laughs> sheriffs, and just about every level of law enforcement. Well, tell me what the KIPP public schools process is. Knowledge is power. Um, that that is, uh, KIPP public schools are. Um, it's a charter school, and uh, our our constituency is uh, lower income um, children, and uh, we have a high school, and our success rate uh, we get uh, 
uh, 80% of our high school seniors get accepted into college, and most of wow, them make it. Wow, that's wonderful. Yeah, most of them make it. That's good. And is it located in East Austin, or is it located where? Well, we've got campuses in Southeast and, um, uh, yeah, mostly east of the interstate is, is, is where we are. I'm quite familiar with all that area. I was raised in East Austin on Willow Street. Oh, yeah. So I know yeah. all of that area yeah. in there, and uh, very proud of it, as a matter of fact. <clears throat> when you worked with the Public Defender Service, was that basically because of what you had done in the past or what you saw that needed to be done better? Well, um, the Capital Area Public Defender Service, I, I, I wasn't able to do any of this until after I retired in, right. in 2013 because it was all conflict of interest. But I, I, after I retired, I, I felt like I wanted to do something. I mean, I love to play golf. <laughs> but I, if I play golf every day, I'm going to get bored with it. So well, and I, it's hard to play that at the headliners <laughs> club, too. Yeah, I did. <laughs> so uh, I, I decided that I wanted to do uh, something that I've always wanted to do. So I, I, I got myself on a grand jury, and um, that was interesting. Mm -hmm. um, and the Capital Area Public Defender Service... Um, I was recruited to become a board member, and what they do is that they oversee um, the uh, qualifications of, of court-appointed counsel. Correct. To make sure. What was happening is that, the, the, and, and we develop a list and say, this lawyer can, is, we certify that this lawyer can adequately represent misdemeanors, uh, the bar is a little higher for felonies, and of course the bar is much, much higher for capital yeah. cases. Yeah. So we make sure that that, that that's that excellent. Is, that's excellent. That's what we do. Okay. What about the older groups, Aguna Alliance? The Aguila Alliance. Mm -hmm. uh, the Aguila Alliance is is um, um, was formed to. Um, strengthen the educational, cultural, and business ties with Mexico. Uh, the relationship is, is very much in, in turmoil right now, and every time I go to uh, Mexico, the reception gets a little chillier because, a little harder. Of, the, because of the, um, you know, the, the, the current political atmosphere here. Um, and just as an aside, I think the, the leading candidate for the Mexican presidency right now, the, the elections are going to be this summer, is a fellow who says, we're going to put Mexico first. NAFTA is um, screwing you. And what does that sound like? Mm -hmm. Sounds like somebody else I've heard say yeah. that. Same <laughs> on. <laughs> and I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to protect you. Okay. Okay. Um, so what the Aguila Alliance does, and this, this was formed before 2016, before the 2016 election, what we wanted to do is make sure that the, that, that, that the ambiance outside the political realm, although it's kind of hard to separate all those, was good because Mexico is, 
is a very, very important trading partner to Texas. $33 billion, and that's an old number, comes across that border every year. $33 billion. Um, and more now. Um, so we wanted to make sure that, that, there, that there was some educational uh, cooperation. And it's not just us. Uh, the, when Perry was governor, when Ann Richards was governor, mm -hmm. when Bill Clements was governor, they, they, they saw the, the, the need to make sure that we were cooperating um, and understanding each other. Not because we're good people, necessarily. But if you want to solve the illegal immigration problem, then uh, a healthy Mexican economy has got to be part of that solution. Okay. We can't do it all for them. I mean, they, they have to do um, a lot of that on their own. But we can help. We can help contribute to, to providing technical assistance or whatever the, whatever, whatever the need may be on the other side of the border. And similarly, uh, we, could, we could stand a little uh, enlightenment um, and, and education from the way things are done in Mexico. They're, Mexico, for all the bad mouthing they get, is becoming a very, very strong, um, uh, is developing a very strong automotive industry. I, I, I drive past a, a Mercedes-Benz plant on the way out of Mexico City. Uh, several, um, other foreign manufacturers have plants there, the, you know, and, and some, there's a lot of interchange, of course, between the border, between the American brands and, and Mexico. So we want to make sure that that, that, right. that, that relationship remains healthy. That sounds good. I can certainly see why you have become a uh, distinguished alumnus <coughs> at your university. You've been so active in so many things. Um, one of the things that fits along with what you were just kind of describing there, both Mexico and Europe, uh, some of the things that you have accomplished there using maybe military veterans? Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm very, um, uh, obviously very invested in, in veterans affairs and I, I want to uh, make sure that, that veterans get a fair shake. I was I consider myself to be very lucky and and I have a I have a buddy I went through basic training with uh who went to Vietnam and he's now diabetic and he's got PTSD and, mm. and um, mm. agent orange exposure is what was is what did it and um sometimes you know we we sometimes joke this is what the thanks of a grateful nation looks like because everybody gets this letter you know when, mm -hmm. when you separate that mine was signed by Westmoreland or Westmoreland's machine. That, that <laughs> I had the thanks of a grateful nation. Right, sure, that and three dollars would give me a cup of coffee at Starbucks. Uh, but I was glad I got the GI Bill, uh, so I was thankful for that. I don't mean to sound flippant, but the GI Bill made it possible for me to 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 finish and get a get a college education. However, I look at that as an investment. Because they get that and more back every year when I file my income tax. Well, they're getting it also back by the leadership that you have shown in so many different kind of communities and a manner in which you have led a life. I was reading about your daughter 
who's not only a doctor, she's a member of the University of Iowa Medical School, and your son is still a captain in the military. They are trying to follow all the leads that you have done, which makes a parent pleased, but you know that they're really working hard in many ways. But they're looking at you, as many other people do, as a leader. And I think that's a wonderful thing to think about. Well, it's kind of you to say that. I've, I've, uh, my children, um, I'm very proud of them, of course. Uh, but I, I think it would be a little presumptuous of me to take all the credit because they're 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 very much their own their own, <laughs> their own people. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, we have punctured you almost with all the questions I could. Could you kind of give me an idea of what you're thinking about today before we shut this down and how you're feeling today? Uh, I'm actually, I'm, I'm feeling very good about things, very optimistic. I, I was diagnosed with uh, uh, old man cancer, prostate cancer several years, uh, two years ago. I had uh, I had an operation in 2016, and so far, uh, the follow-up checks have been have been good. clean. Good. Good. Uh, I was diagnosed as uh, diabetic, which is a kind of a family runs in the family disease, um, and I've been able to sort of hold that at bay, and I hope I can continue to do so. Uh, I feel great about my kids. I feel great about my grandchildren. Um, life has been very good to me, and and uh, uh, I think I get a little uh, concerned. I, I think about what what uh, my son is going to face uh, uh, eventually in his career. He hadn't been deployed yet, but. You know, he's a career military guy. He's made it very clear to me that he wants that he wants to continue. So at some point or another, he's going to have to somebody's going to have to shoot at him. Um, <laughs> and unfortunately, that's the way you that we call it trigger time. Um, you know, he's going to have to go through that. I understand that. I understand it. He's going to have to go through that. But but he is tough. He's he's trained and. Um, uh, so I, I don't, I worry about him, but I don't worry about him. Yeah. Well, the toughness sounds like you got a lot of it from his dad, and I just want to thank you very much. I'm very proud to have been able to be here and learn about you and be able to talk to you about it and to help the History Association. Is there anything that you'd like to say? No, I feel, I feel, I feel very honored to have been selected um, to... Uh, do this. I, I was telling Felicia that I'm, I'm not used to being on this side of the interview. <laughs> so it's, I'm not a bit surprised, but I'm used to being on this side. <laughs> so, well, I thank you very much. I appreciate it. Well, thank you. Thank you. I wanted to tell the story about the mad killer of Carlsbad. Well, you could have. You want to tell her? She's still on. Uh, tell me about yeah, no, one no. of your favorite stories. <laughs> uh, after I got, well, actually, I have two. 
Yeah, you shouldn't have gotten me started on this. Uh, one night at the at the Standard Times, um, we had the police monitor on. It was always in the background. So all of a sudden, they, they, they said that the, the sheriff's deputies got dispatched to uh, respond to a shooting, a killing in, in Carlsbad, Texas, which is a little community north of, of San Angelo. <laughs> and so that was a big deal, you know. Mm -hmm. So we go uh, hauling ass out the door. We're driving and we're listening and, and it says, um, Subject is armed with a 45 caliber pistol, a 30-30 rifle, and then several other weapons. And then, and then there was a silence, and the dispatch says, Subject advised that he wouldn't be taken alive. <laughs> <laughs> so we get there, and it looks like a cop convention. I can, yeah, I can uh, It's a DPS and Tom Green County Sheriff and... And so they're all trying, they're huddling around trying to figure out what they're going to do. And, and uh, so the sheriff himself was out there, and this is like 11, 12 at night. What had happened was that this guy got in a dispute over a domino game with another guy and pulled out a gun and just plugged it. Oh, my point blank. Just killed mm. him dead, right? DRT, dead right there. Mm. So, um, so then he, he went home and he was going to, you know, Come get me. So they had the place surrounded. So the sheriff said, okay, uh, it's a DPS and uh, Tom Green County Sheriff's. And it was outside the San Angelo police jurisdiction. So the sheriff said, okay, his plan was we're going to hit him with the headlights, you know. And then, you know, that's going to blind him. So then we're going to shoot tear gas in the window and bring him out that way. Well, uh, um, there was a deputy sheriff there who was not too bright. His name was Chester Dieter. And uh, Chester was just, you know, kind of like a stereotypical goober deputy sheriff, <laughs> cowboy hat. <laughs> so the sheriff gave, gave uh, uh, was starting to give the countdown. Chester was nervous and uh, hit the, didn't hit the headlight switch, he turned on the siren, which sort of ruined the element of surprise. And so, uh, <laughs> so then, so then they fired the tear gas, you hear the window breaking and it's, and just then, just then, this norther kind of came through and blew the tear gas back in the faces of the police officers who were going to bang on the door and they didn't have their masks on and so <laughs> but nothing happened nothing happened it, with the siren there was nothing nothing from inside well, he was laughing too hard <laughs> <laughs> what they figure happened later was when they when they lobbed the tear gas in there, it hit the guy on the head and knocked him out. Oh. And so and he had his weapons all ready to go. So what the what the what they the way they pieced it together later, the guy was gonna shoot it out with the with the police. Mm -hmm. 
but he, he got home, he was so drunk he passed out. He woke up just with the siren must have woken him up and he got in <laughs> Well, that siren was a good thing. <laughs> and that was the mad killer of Carlsbad. <laughs> That's funny. About what year was that? That was in 60, 70, I think. Oh, that's a good one. I'm glad you shared that one with us. That's cool. That's cool. Was there another one? Oh, uh, yeah, Lyndon Johnson. When Mr. and Hennett, uh, the celebrity groupie I mentioned earlier, um, when uh, Mr. Hart died, Hart, Hart Hanks, who owned the San Angelo Standard Time, this was in 1972. Um, Hennett was having a field day because the funeral attracted every statewide elected official in Texas. I mean, the attorney general was there, the, uh, it's all kinds of legislators. But the, the, the main attraction was Lyndon Johnson and Lady Bird. Uh, so that they were, because Johnson had been, and Mr. Hart had been really good friends. And so uh, Hennett was just having a field day. He was charging <laughs> all the celebrities. Oh, Bill Hennett. He was a big man. Yeah. So, um, six one. <clears throat> so I'm standing on the sidewalk and I'm watching all this, watching, having fun watching Hennett. People were looking at him like, what is this crazy old man? Um, and so there was, and I knew all the cops, and I saw this sergeant on a motorcycle that I didn't recognize. And uh, he comes roaring over. And it was the chief's administrative assistant. He took his helmet off, and I recognized him. And I said, damn, Jerry, how far back in your closet did you have to go to find that uniform? He said, be careful. And he said, there's a lot of security up there. And he kind of pointed up to the roof, and there's rifles. And um, so, here comes Johnson, they're walking down the street. Secret Service here, Secret Service uh, behind, and on the flanks. Right. Pretty standard. And plus all the firepower mm -hmm. on them. Hennett had been telling one of the photographers, Lyndon Johnson taught me school, I bet you he remembers me. and says, oh, Hennett, you're so good. you know. He says, I'll bet you steak dinner. They just take dinner. He recognizes me. <laughs> so the uh, photographer says, okay, you're on. Steak dinner, that was a lot of money. Uh, that's a week's pay. Yeah. So here comes, here comes Johnson with all this security. Hennett goes charging. And it, it was like a Peckinpah movie. Everything <laughs> was going in slow motion. And he's going, hello, Mr. President. At that point, you know, I saw the Secret Service going like this. And uh, he found a seam, and he gets in there. And Johnson, a huge man, he grabs him like this, saving his life. Yes, he did. And he says, Bill Hennett, my old student, God bless you. He remembered it. <laughs> he wonderful. Remembered it. Not only did he remember him, he saved his life. He did. I, oh, I was, he sure did. He I sure was, did. You know, you know, you oh, know, they were, you oh, know, he was a dead man. Oh, running up yeah, like that, he yeah. was. Well, that's interesting. Uh, and you've talked about uh, 
Governor Richards, uh, she and I were very good friends. I, I tell you, she could keep me laughing even when oh, I yeah, was she's, crying. She's a, she's, a, she's a funny lady. And uh, Perry uh, was very nice to me. And uh, I started and wrote Homeland Security for the state of Texas. Oh, yeah? And then he left the state. Then he, yeah. went. <laughs> <laughs> he went to Washington. I don't know if maybe I made a mistake. <laughs> but that's good. Well, you've got a lot of good stories. We ought to do this again sometime. Oh, I'd love to. All right. Thank you very much. And uh, we'll send a copy of this to your wife and tell her all about it. No, I'm just teasing. <laughs> yeah. I thought that was off. I want you to say, this is Gerald Adams, because nobody has said that on tape. Well, thank you for everything that you've done. My name is Gerald Adams. I'm one of the lucky guys that gets to interview great people, and I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you.